Welcome to Media Tribe, the podcast that's on a mission to restore faith in journalism. I'm Shona Kinnair, an award-winning journalist with over 10 years of experience working for some of the biggest news outlets in the industry. Every week, I'm going to introduce you to some of the world's most respected journalists, filmmakers and media executives, and you're going to hear the story behind the storyteller. You'll get a sense of the integrity and hard graft that's involved in journalism, and hopefully you'll go away feeling that this craft is worth valuing. What social media has done is it's made lies laced with anger and hate spread faster and further than facts. The fact that the platforms that distribute news are biased against facts is the core reason why the world is upside down. In 2015, Maria Ressa, the editor of Rappler in the Philippines, interviewed Rodrigo Duterte, the now president, where he confessed to killing three people. When Duterte took office in 2016, Maria Ressa and her colleagues started reporting on the president's brutal war against drugs and the spread of disinformation on social media in the Philippines. Maria has remained in Duterte's crosshairs as his crackdown on the press has intensified, and she's been accused of fraud tax evasion, and receiving money from the Central Intelligence Agency. She's been arrested twice and has posted bail nine times. Maria is now the subject of the film A Thousand Cuts, directed by the indomitable Ramona Diaz, which premiered at Sundance last year and is now airing on PBS Frontline. Maria Ressa and Ramona Diaz, welcome to the Media Tribe. Thanks for having us. It's good to be here. Great. Well, Maria, I'm going to kickstart the interview with a rather big question. But why do you continue to hold a lawless regime to account when you face significant jail time and the possibility of being killed? Because I have to, because I'm in a... It's funny. I don't know whether I'm the luckiest or the most cursed, I guess. You know, look, this time matters for us in the Philippines. If it was just me, maybe I could I, I could go be a hermit now, to be honest. I'm tired. But um, again, Rappler is here. Um, there's, we're moving into the last two years of this administration. Elections are coming up. As you know, in the United States, disinformation, social media platforms have become breeding ground for hate speech, for disinformation, for conspiracy theories. That also, by the way, is the, is the world's largest distributor of news. So this is a problem that is not just ours, but yours. And I think fixing it will be our, the biggest burden we'll have in the coming years. So do you, I mean, do you feel a personal responsibility that you just can't back off now and you have to keep going? I think it's that I don't have a choice. <laughs> you know, it's not even, so number one for Rappler, absolutely. I am responsible for my team. This is a wonderful team. It is, you know, we're holding the line at something that that gets better with pressure. You know, what is that? It's like a diamond now when you when you exert so much pressure on something. Forged in fire is another phrase. But then the other part is the government has filed 11, in 2018, the government filed 11 cases against us. I got, I just got my ninth arrest warrant. Right. So I will fight these cases and win them because they're ludicrous. In the meantime, I also know that whether or not I go to jail will depend on what I do now. And as long as I have my rights, 
I will fight. This isn't, I'm not voluntarily giving up my rights. Wow. Well, you're a, a very brave lady, as most of the world knows. And um, Ramona, do you want to kind of explain to our audience fr- from your experience making a thousand cuts? And you are, are of course, Filipino American yourself, Ramona. What has the government so riled up with Maria's work and, and, and Rappler's work at large? Because uh, they won't shut up, right? Because they call it out like it is. Uh, I think it started because um, they sort of... Uh, broke the myth of this drug war. That's what it was. They called out the numbers. They called out impunity. And Duterte was not too happy about it. The numbers uh, um, that were the reality on the ground and the, and the myth making that the administration was doing was uh, there was a chasm between that, right? So a Rappler unpacked that. Rappler unpacked the numbers and what what was really happening. And, you know, when you start shining light on these things in dark places, they don't usually like it, especially someone like President Duterte. And so that is a big question. What are they so afraid? Why? Why are they so afraid of Maria, especially? that Look, the government tried to shut them down. They're still operating. Shut them down in 2017, it's 2020. They're still fighting their closure and they're still doing the really difficult reports. So I think that's why Duterte is really afraid of them. I mean, fear is what he wants people to feel and fear is what they're pushing back on. For context, Duterte came into power in 2016, promising vengeance and violence and a crackdown on drugs. And he was targeting poor people, really poor addicts. He wasn't going after the big dealers. Do you want to give us more context, though, about your reporting and how you unveiled a disinformation campaign, which is a key part as to why you and your team are being targeted like this? Yeah, I I mean, it's funny because the fact that the that the government keeps going after us makes me think that maybe we haven't done enough of the stories that they must want to hide, right? What have we touched? What what else are they trying to protect that we, what are they hiding? On disinformation, it's critical because the foundation, if these times have taught us anything, it is that information is power. We've known that forever. With disinformation, what's happened is that technology has allowed the replacement of facts. If you repeat a lie a million times, it becomes a fact. And once that happens, when we have different sets of facts, you know, I I sit on the real Facebook oversight board and Roger McNamee, who wrote Zucked, he's one of the first investors in Facebook. he He said, look, we're all living in our own Truman show, but I like using the matrix Because in many ways, what social media has done is it's made lies laced with anger and hate spread faster and further than facts. It's biased against facts, right? The fact that the fact that the platforms that distribute news are biased against facts is the core reason why the world is upside down. So if you can make people believe the lies, then you can control them. And that's what's happened in the Philippines. I think the reason why we get targeted is because we give you the, the data. We give you the evidence of how you're being manipulated. And that here's the funny thing. Research actually shows that even if you know you're being manipulated, if it's aligned with your cognitive bias, you'll continue believing it. So this is the problem. 
right? And this is part of the reason also that even in the United States, after a Biden win, the division, the way people think, the way their minds have been conditioned, these are things that aren't going to go away. So these are problems we're going to continue dealing with, we'll continue exposing. In the Philippines, I watched from 2016 until now, I watched our society splinter. And, and by design, right? I, I say this all the time, you know, uh, the, the way the social media platforms grow, all of them, is by recommending friends of friends. That's a tech choice. When you recommend friends of friends, so in 2016, we didn't debate the facts. We were all, all the news groups agreed on that. But if you were pro-Duterte after 2016 and you wanted to grow your network, you would move further right. If you're anti-Duterte, growing the network means you're going to move further left. And over time, from 2016 to 2020, you know, you'll just get splintered apart. And that's where we are. And then each group, if they believe their own facts, they're all lies. So that means we have no shared reality. Well, they're, be- they're believing their own version of the truth. That's, that's the problem. And in your brilliant film, both of you, th- you say that you know, at that time when you kind of unveiled that Duterte's social media campaign were using fake accounts to kind of spread this misinformation like wildfire, that you, Maria, were receiving 90 threats an hour on Facebook or insults. Or, c- can you both go into that? I mean, that's insane and it's, it's terribly scary. I think the first thing Maria is going to say is it's, it wasn't misinformation. It was disinformation because it was intended, right? It's intended. It's not, um, it's not unintentional. But uh, yeah, Maria. 98 messages an hour. That was an average. And that was meant to pound me to silence. And for a little bit, they succeeded because I had to figure out, oh my God, at the beginning, I I was trying to respond and it was coming so fast, I couldn't respond to it. And they weren't interested in a conversation, but I was foolish enough to think. We were so naive in 2016. And then I realized that by gathering data, and this is, uh, is connected to your first question, when you gather the data, you begin to see the picture. And then you begin to see, you realize you shouldn't be looking at the content, but at the networks the disinformation networks. And then we began treating disinformation networks like terrorist networks. And then the last thing that we did once we once we had a database where we could actually look at the entire information ecosystem, we started using natural language processing to take a look at the attacks and then cluster the attacks. This is a weird way of looking at it, but when you distance it from yourself, then frankly, I, I've developed a very thick skin now. You know, it's that it doesn't bother me. I mean, g- give us an example of, of what, what these people were saying on social media. I mean, you saw some in the film, right? Uh, behead them, shoot them dead, line them up like a firing squad. In my case, they tried to think of the thing I would be most vulnerable to. Um, so one of the things they've done is I have dry skin and it always, strangely, always shows in my face. I have eczema. And so one of the names they call me is scrotum face. It's, it's, it's gendered attacks. They are sexualized and it is, it's vicious. And so the first time I saw it, of course, it's like you get, and they they have drawings that dehumanize you. You know, so I'll see my face on top of things, right? You can imagine what a scrotum face looks like. And, and the hard part is, I mean, to even say that, well, the point is it's meant to make you feel bad. So, 
So you stop and you move forward. And I think that's part of the reason I'm working very hard to try to figure out how to prevent things like this from happening. Because especially after the verdict June 15th this year, the attacks have become, have switched from attacking credibility, which was in the beginning, to attacking, to calling you corrupt, to calling you all of the things. Then it becomes about how you look, what you what you sound like. Um, and now it's about dehumanizing you. And the problem with, de- with attacks that dehumanize is that when you repeat them often enough, you become a target of violence. And, and I think this is, this is a problem that, that social media platforms are going to have to deal with. But in general, there's a report that was just released by UNESCO with ICFJ that, that shows you that women journalists um, are, are attacked a lot more and they react in different ways. You know, many of them losing their voices. In the Philippines, women are attacked at least 10 times more than men. Wow. Just to take you back to 2015, when you did that now infamous interview where the now president Duterte admitted to killing people. Do you think that was a turning point in his kind of hatred towards you and your work? Not at all. Not at all. I interviewed him again uh, in after he was president in the palace, in the presidential palace. There were four of us. He gave four interviews and I still got one of those four, right? In December of 2016. But there are too many parallels to the Marcos years, right? What happened, I think, is President Duterte has a ring of people around him who have their own uh, search for power and money, their own vested interests. And over time, the, the bloggers, so this would be kind of the alternative news sites that were being created with the aid of Facebook. Um, they, uh, we then became a target. So that by the time we came out with the propaganda machine, it was very, very clear that um, that the, the the entire government would soon be turning up against us. President Duterte, I think you captured this in 2017 when he attacked Rappler in his State of the Nation address. Uh, we had our first subpoena a week after that. So that was like a signal to the government, run after them. And we weren't the first news group to be attacked. We're just the loudest to fight back. You know, how how was it for you, Ramona, following a person who is a target on their back in the Philippines as a female director and journalist? And I just want to add in, I have read that you guys at Rappler considered putting in bulletproof glass um, on your windows. Um, like that's how dangerous we're, we're, we're talking, just in case the audience isn't familiar with how lethal the situation is. If you want to take that question, Ramona. You know, as a documentary filmmaker who actually lives in the U.S., I guess I go back and forth, right? I do most of my work in the Philippines. I'm I'm based here. Um, In this instance, this film, uh, the administration knew I was making the film. They knew because I needed to get permission from them to uh, film the president closely, right, in the pit during the rallies. Um, And I think because they knew I was making the film, they were less likely to, uh, it was safer for us, I think, uh, because I was try- I was giving them that knowledge, right? If they had found out, and then it would seem like I was hiding, that was then scarier. So I, I think for me, it was important to be very visible. Also because in the film, as you see, uh, I filmed the general, 
De La Rosa, Bato, uh, who was the first implementer of the drug war. So very allied with Duterte. And uh, Moja Uson, the, polit- the pop star turned politician, very big supporter of Duterte, so also very close to the president. Um, and, and, I was, and they knew I was following Maria because you couldn't help but no, every time she got arrested, we were on television with her. You, you know, we were not hiding. And I think because we were not hiding, it was safer for us. And the real danger is really, as you see in the film, it's not from the administration. It's from the crazies who show up at Rappler. The, the ones who think they are going to, on behalf of Duterte. It's also, the, you know, what he what he enables, obviously, with, because of his rhetoric. So th- that's the real danger. And uh, that you can't really predict or you can't know what's going to happen. And you just have, okay, you're following someone who has to wear a bulletproof vest. Do you then also wear a bulletproof vest? But we cannot do our work with it. It's, it's very tough. So we just decided we're just going to do it. What, not do it? Right. It's either do it or not do it. So like Maria, it's like, do we have a choice? I, I suppose we had a choice, but I think um, uh, it would always haunt me not to make this story. What am I a documentary filmmaker for? And Maria being so brave, it's just almost like a challenge. Oh, she said, OK, also, we're also brave. We're also going to do this. Well, good good for you, Ramona. And it's an extraordinary film. And I really, really urge everybody to go and watch it on PBS Frontline. It's called A Thousand Cuts. And I would love to kind of actually just tap into why it's called A Thousand Cuts. I know there's a beautiful line in the film. Either of you can take that question. Can you explain what A Thousand Cuts means? It's Maria who says that line in the in the film. So I think Maria should explain. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, I'll give you a little bit longish for where it comes from. When I was with CNN, the last, after 9-11, uh, I became kind of the Southeast Asian uh, investigative reporter for the links to Al-Qaeda and how the ideology, that virulent ideology spread in our region. And that phrase, death by a thousand cuts, came from an Al-Qaeda's mantra, their magazine, it's called Inspire Magazine. And it was about asymmetrical warfare. This is how they were going to fight huge power. Except in our case, it's huge power that is actually in plain sight. The asymmetrical warfare is turned upside down. In plain sight, they're cutting democracy down. And that's kind of the other way I thought about it, which is what the film, what Ramona captured in the film is, you know, literally, you, it's like you're getting cuts and you're bleeding out. And each little cut doesn't seem so deep, but you put them all together, you will hemorrhage and die. And that's that's what's happening to our democracy. In in the United States, it's slower in because your institutions are stronger. In the Philippines, I would say our checks and balances, they collapsed within six months. Of Duterte coming to power. So, so sticking to your story, Maria, just for one more question before we kind of move on to this story at large when it comes to press freedom and uh, the erosion of democracies all around the world. Do you think you might end up in jail? Does that feel realistic? Sure, it's a possibility. Yeah, it's one of many. So I, I, I say this all the time, whether I go to jail or not is dependent on what I do now, right? And will I, will I fight? I have no choice because I will fight. 
And I now have firsthand knowledge of how power is abused. I don't have to talk to the victim. I am, right? Um, and then the other part of it, I can't tell where it's going to go and I can't lay my life like I know where the end will go. But I do know that every day I live by my ideals. I work with a great group of people who do the best journalism we can do to hold power to account. And are you scared? You, you, of course, there are moments. Of course, right? And I think I, the way I dealt with this is the, I like combining Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock. You're familiar with Star Trek, Kirk and Spock, right? So, of course. So that's really what I want to be. It's like, because I think that, and, and breaking news, working for CNN for 20 years and doing breaking news on camera forces you to like take whatever emotion you have, no matter what's going on around you and, and stifle it, push it down to the bottom of your stomach so that your brain is clear. And then I almost automatically lower my voice because when I do that, then the clear thoughts from my brain can come out of my mouth. And so my best friend sometimes calls me a stoic, you know, but it's not the stoic of I don't feel it. It's that I want to process it and understand it. So the phrase I always use is I want to embrace my fear. I want to think of the worst case scenario that can happen and then really imagine it workflow it if I need to and embrace it so that I can rob it of its sting. And then if I can accept the worst case scenario, that everything is okay. Wow. I'm sure you're, I, I can see your jaws nearly on the table as well, Ramona. My observation with her is a little bit opposite. It, it's not stepping in. It's not embracing it. It is actually stepping back. It's more an observer thing she does. But I think it's also because of her training as a journalist, right? She steps back. And even if she is the, she is the story, she still has Maria. It's weird. You know, she's in the room, but... Uh, it's okay. She can talk about me. <laughs> <laughs> she still has this uh, capability of stepping back and looking at it from a vantage point that she can then see clearly. Mr. Spock! I keep telling you. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an observer. You know, she becomes the observer of her own narrative. Well, th th that, and that's you, you've put that really beautifully, actually, Ramona. And uh, the thing is, no journalist ever wants to become this story, but you categorically are the story, unfortunately, Maria. And um, and I think we should move on to. To press freedom, the lack thereof, certainly in the Philippines and around the world. And I just want to let our audience know if they don't know, but Duterte has accused reporters of being spies and sons of bitches. Uh, and he's also said that reporters should not be exempted from assassination. Do Filipinos agree with that? Obviously, I will say no. But when you, it's kind of like President Trump and the statements that come out of him. Do Americans agree with it? Some do, right? Significant. It, it plays on your anger, your fear. It creates an us against them world. It makes you, if you feel like you're at the losing end of something, you want to punch back. In the film, Patricia calls it, you know, revenge, that that's what President Duterte offers. I think that it's very difficult when the, when the most powerful person in the country 
says things that you know are just wrong. We call out the lies. We learned to do that in 2016. Watching America go through it is interesting to us. But now it has changed Filipinos. And again, I blame technology because it wouldn't have happened so quickly if the social media platforms weren't designed in a particular way. But now we're forever changed. And I worry all the time of how we get back to a point where anger and hate, where this kind of violence, both spoken and in the real world, where that is not the world we live in, because it isn't. The Philippines especially, right? This is not a country. If you had asked me before 2016 whether Filipinos can be writing or saying or screaming these things, I would have said that's impossible. In fact, I did. Someone asked me that in 2016, right before the elections. One of the analysts said, do you think that that there could ever be a coup or a government could take over? And I was like, no way. We have social media. Little did I know, you know, and that's that's the biggest problem. The, The world is turned upside down because our information ecosystem is turned upside down. And Ramona, I I think in 2019, three journalists were killed, according to Reporters Without Borders in the Philippines. I know you wanted to capture Maria's, you know, journey and Maria's story, but was there kind of a greater good to the inspiration behind this film to showcase how bad things can get? Well, to me, it was more personal than that, actually, because I was... um... I was raised under martial law. I grew up in the Philippines. So I, um, I knew what that felt like. So the rise of Duterte, when Duterte became president in 2016, it seemed re- regressive to me. And I knew what it took to build all the democratic institutions over years and years and years. And suddenly we're, we were going back in time, it felt like to me, even as, you know, as I watched the drug war happen from the US. And so that's what took me back to the Philippines. I just wanted to see what is going on. And this sort of vague notion of making a film about the Philippines under Duterte. And of course, the initial the initial impulse was the drug war because that was what was gaining um, global attention. But when I got on the ground, the, a lot of people were making that film already because obviously, right, what drew me to it drew a lot of people to it. Uh, so I looked around. I looked around and there was Maria Ressan Rappler, right, not only calling out impunity, the impunity of the president and talking about how wrong the drug war was, but they, uh, Maria was also connecting it to disinformation, the weaponization of social media. And that was, to me, that made it more, a more global story. And then around that, it was sort of a circuitous way to get to press freedom then, because it's all connected. There's intersectionality. So that's how, that's how it all happened. And the way, I, the, the way I make my films is I let the story unfold in front of the lens. And I, I follow the story. And, it, you know, this is my fifth film my fifth film. So it's very intuitive in a way. So when I always say when the documentary gods tell you this is your story now, you must listen to that. And so that's how Maria became the sort of the center of the film. 
And it feels like you potentially, Ramona, could make this film in many other countries now. So, you know, do, do you, Maria, maybe want to talk about how the Philippines, in your words, is kind of being used as a little test lab as to how disinformation can fray a democracy and how things can really get out of control? Do you want to kind of talk about the world at large and, and really why we should be concerned? I mean, you're seeing it play out, right? The The methodology is simple. They're bottom-up attacks, exponential, death by a thousand cuts, right? This is like fertilizer when it's disinformation or conspiracy theories. And then the same narrative comes top-down and slowly you will you take over. Then it becomes using the full power of the state against you. In my case, bottom-up 2016, top-down 2017, 11 cases and investigations, 11 cases in 2018, eight arrest warrants in 2019 and 2020, a conviction and a ninth arrest warrant. Look, look at the other countries around the world. It's interesting because even as disinformation has risen, so have protests. Hong Kong, we are watching Hong Kong very, very closely because three young people who were just protesting were just, uh, were sentenced to jail. Again, Joshua Wong, this is his third time going to jail. For speaking, you have an owner, a very you know respected owner of uh, of Apple Daily, Jimmy Lai, has just been, you know, brought to court in in chains. I mean, there's an instance actually when I was arrested where, you know, they picked me up from the airport shoot and then I had a debate with the with the officers. There were a lot of them, but they were still a little risk they were still respectful because they said, you know, ma'am, please put your jacket over your hands and pretend we handcuffed you. I'm not gonna pretend you handcuffed me. Handcuff me. If you're gonna handcuff me, handcuff me. Then I watched Jimmy lie and you know, he was not just he was handcuffed, his he couldn't really walk. So Hong Kong is a battle that, you know, if Hong Kong falls, then there's that's something that will will go through our region. This is the strength of China. Belarus, you're looking, I mean, I can I can name all of these countries around the world, but let, let me put it this way. Um, after we sounded the alarm in 2016, in November of 2017, the first research report came out and it was Freedom House. They said uh, that cheap armies on social media were rolling back democracy in 27 countries around the world. In 2018, that nearly doubled to 42. And then in 2019, it came to over 72. We don't have the numbers yet for 2020, but with the pandemic in 2020, it gave many governments around the world time to consolidate power, like, like President Duterte did in the Philippines. Plus, it gave money. So tremendous control, tremendous money. So I, 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 early on in March, I wrote something that I was hoping that this virus would not infect democracy, but it has. And so that's another problem we're going to have to deal with once we have a vaccine and we come out and recreate our world. And again, this is a question for, for both of you. Obviously, Maria, you have experienced what you have experienced over the last four to five years. And Ramona, you have watched Maria and, and, and watched the story unfold. 
are there solutions? Like, what are the fixes? What can the public do to help? What can people listening to this podcast do to help? What can the mainstream media do to help? What can politicians do to help? And most importantly, what can big tech do to help? You're giving to me, Ramona. I'll, I'll start. I'll start. Because, of course, I've had to think this through because where do I spend my time? I try to do that Pareto principle where you you take 20% that will yield 80%, right? And to me, uh, I think about how do we fix this? Number one, stop the poison or stop the virus, right? Because the virus of lies is as potent as COVID. Right now, it is killing our democracy. So that's the first. It's a tech problem. The pillars of Rappler are tech in journalism and community. So let's, in all these pillars, the first is regulations now, because I don't believe tech is capable of self-regulation anymore. And that changed during the course of the filming of the film. Um, uh, and I just finished on November 12th, I co-chaired something for the Forum on Information and Democracy with my co-chairs, Marette Kashaka, the former EU parliament member. And she, we came out with 12 kind of strategic ways of attacking this. So you're not playing whack-a-mole, attacking the problems and gave recommendations up to 250 of them for tech, for governments, for civil society. The other thing is we're building our own tech because tech in the hands of journalists is different, right? So we rolled out a new tech platform for Rappler. The second thing is we need to strengthen in journalism. We need to help the gatekeepers, especially at a time of COVID when so many news groups are closing shop, right? And then beyond that, there have to be ways to protect journalists on the front line. I know this firsthand. And so I, it's it's always a joy to work with Keelan Gallagher and, and Amal Clooney, who's on the high-level legal panel that was put together by Canada and Britain. They've come out with papers and recommendations for what countries that believe in democracies, what they should be doing. And there are three major papers that were just released in November. Finally, the last one is civil society, community. If you voted, you got to do more. (laughs) These times demand much more. And so, you know, what can you do to help protect your democracy? What can, because the, the battle for truth is the first one that is deeply connected to the climate battle that is deeply connected to health, right? If we don't protect our earth, it's going to bring you new viruses. So these are all intertwined, but they're huge problems that not one group, not one country can solve. So the irony is, as the world tries to come together to solve huge problems, the very platforms that we actually use to supposedly connect the ones that distribute news are the ones that are dividing us. So this has got to change. I mean, everything you've said there is so valid. And, and I, I, I hope we're slowly beginning to realize what needs to happen. And Ramona, I'm sure you have a very strong say on, on what media can do and what filmmakers like yourselves can do. It, it feels like it's not just enough to create awareness anymore. There does seem to be, and I know it's controversial to say this as a journalist, but there does seem to be an overlap between journalism and activism. I really, really firmly believe it. Yes. I mean, listen, what we do is tell stories. And I think we should be telling more of these stories. It's important. It's daylight upon magic, right? We have to 
tell people what's happening. And the more we do, the more they'll listen. And I think the idea of being a good digital citizen is really important, right? You can do something yourself right now without feeling overwhelmed, especially with a pandemic. Stop sharing that article you have not read and, and really look at the sources. You can do, you can do it like right now. You, you can do your part. It's the little things, right? So I, I think with, uh, with films like A Thousand Cuts and other films that are now talking about the weaponization of social media, how the engineering works, I, I, think that, I think that's really important. And just to keep saying it and just to keep talking about it because it will reach the mainstream after a while. I think it has already. There is another film, Social Dilemma, that really unpacks this. Right. Uh, my daughter, who's in her early 20s, actually said, Mom, have you seen The Social Dilemma? I'm like, why are you telling me about documentaries? I mean, that's a that was something new. I mean, the fact that she had heard about it is something, you know, it's something else. And also, you know, my, my aunt in the Philippines said, you should really watch The Social Dilemma. I'm like, yes, Tita. <laughs> <laughs> we were with that film at Sundance last year. So you know something's happening. So I think it's key to keep on telling the stories. Exactly. Well, we all need to use our voices, not just um, rely on, on the likes of Maria um, to use hers. Um, and everybody listen to, listening to this podcast um, will go and watch PBS Frontline. Somehow we'll figure out a way for audiences outside of the States to, to get their hands in it. We'll certainly link to this on this podcast when we release this episode. But a huge thank you to both of you, um, Maria and Ramona, for joining me from the Philippines and, and from the States. Ramona, a sincere thanks to both of you for all that you do in your work as journalists and filmmakers. It's so appreciated and respected and we're all so, so grateful. Thank you. Thank you. If you like what you heard on this episode of Media Tribe, that's very good news because I'm going to be dropping new shows every week and every month on my new Media Tribe Spotlight series. Also, if you haven't already, make sure to take a listen to previous shows with some legendary folk in the industry. And as ever, please, please, please do leave me a rating and review as it really does help other people find this podcast. Finally, if you do have any guest suggestions, drop me a note on Twitter. I'm at Shauna with the GH or at Shauna Kinnear on Instagram. And again, that's with the GH. Right, that's it. See you soon. This episode was edited by Ryan Ferguson.